2: Hello, this is Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all of our assumptions about culture, like that no one misses Dick Clark in his New Year's Rockin' Eve. I mean, I miss Dick Clark. Once, long ago, when he was the oldest living teenager and Madonna had just a decade earlier told him on American Bandstand that she wanted to rule the world, I called him in L.A. for a story. It was the 90s, of course, and he answered his own phone. I just knew it was a rotary. I asked him about something he had to refer to a file for, and while Dick Clark went through his papers in his office, he kept shouting into the phone, I'm so sorry to make you wait. This is long distance for you. I'll reverse the charges. Guys, she's calling long distance. I mean, is that the sweetest? He was a great guy. He put on some great New Year's Eves. And don't bother watching Ryan Seacrest try to fill his shoes. If you want to see how New Year's Eve should really be done, skip 2022 and watch reruns of 1973, 1987, and of course the great 1999 with Dick Clark. Best way to start off the new year? With an old year and Dick Clark. So some of you may know that I did an English PhD in the 1990s. Yep, the 1990s. Actually, why should you know that? I wrote about financial dynamics in American novels and especially inflation. And now I'm going to give you a brief summary of my methodology and argument. So set aside 120 minutes. Be sure you have a copy of the complete works of Frank Norris and, of course, Walter Ben Michaels and Derrida. Oh, oh, come now. I'm just kidding. Sort of. So, like some lapsed academics, but unlike others, I retain an interest in literary criticism and especially critical theory. And yes, that includes queer theory, feminist theory, critical race theory, and all the books now being burned in Texas. So, get them while they're hot. And over the years, I have, from my ex-academic perch watched Maggie Nelson, who did her dissertation around the same time I did, but she took a different course. For example, she won a Guggenheim and a MacArthur, while I sometimes complete the New York Times spelling bee. Maggie Nelson now writes autobiography, art criticism, critical theory, and poetry. Her book, The Argonauts, is one that people who follow the decluttering dogma of Marie Kondo say, always, always stays on their shelves. It relentlessly sparks joy with its mix of elegant abstraction and animal lustiness. And her latest book is a marvel too. I love the title, On Freedom. I like it when non-male writers use QED titles like that. Freedom. I'm going to close the book on this topic, so watch me. The subtitle of her book is Four Songs of Care and Constraint, and Maggie Nelson works through the notion of freedom in four domains—art, sex, drugs, and the environment. Every page of this book loosened up some of the thinking that had become hardened in my head, and I pretty much dare you to read it and risk thinking new thoughts. But as we enter this interview, I want to give a true and thorough trigger warning for anyone with an allergy to critical theory. Maybe you're kind of on the right and think talk of patriarchy and other power structures that suffuse our language and culture. Maybe you think all that makes one feel too guilty about something. Or maybe you're a lefty and think critical theory is just a rarefied jargon set that makes you roll your eyes. Or maybe you just don't like references to Heidegger and all that is fine. But once again, I dare you to try this out. Maggie is among the finest practitioners of this mode of cultural analysis alive today. And it's worth tabling some preconceptions to hear her out and even let her enlighten you. So here we go, investigating the conflict between freedom and constraint, where care, as in taking care of one another, care is caught right in the middle, between freedom and constraint. Maggie Nelson, welcome to This is Critical.
3: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
2: I uh, should warn you that the producer is always worried that I move too quickly to abstraction um, on this show. And I think you might have something of the same problem. So I'm going to make it my obligation to bring us down to Earth. Um, and and as a very bad pilot of the Earth, I will, um, I, I'll, I'll just have to do my best. <laughs> um, all right. I first want to talk about hope because we're at the new year hope has something of the future tense in it and we're in a place where we're having trouble even kind of believing in the future why should we have hope what is hope when it seems like we're at some kind of end of something or other
3: I'm such a parser of words, you know, and I've written this book about freedom and everyone's like, what's freedom? I'm like, the whole book is not going to work like that. And so I think I just in talking to people about hope, I think it's really important that we sometimes use the word and we're not all meaning the same thing, you know, and I actually think of this in that I had a a long conversation with a good friend of mine who um, who died about a year ago. In, in a very dark moment of last year, she would had a big accident. She was in a wheelchair, and when she was recovering from that accident, and I was helping her, you know, we, we actually talked a lot about the word hope. And she would say, "I have to have hope. My future will be different from my present because I, this way of living is, doesn't feel um, livable." And I would, I was kind of full of these Buddhist adages about hopelessness, about giving up mm-hmm. hope as being the beginning. But it was great to talk to her because I realized we weren't actually really disagreeing about a lot of things. We were just using different words to describe different states. So I think hope is not like a word that I that means a lot to me in terms of like orienting myself towards a future. Like I don't find it the most helpful word. I mean, she was trying to tell me in my condition, it's a really necessary word and concept right now. And mm-hmm. I think it's okay to have that we don't all have to agree per, per, per se.
2: It's funny because I think I tend to agree with you. I mean, I know we're both sober and the crux of a certain kind of sobriety is the day you quit drinking is the day you say you drink too much, um, which is a case for kind of the benefits of despair, of hitting rock bottom, of being hopeless. Um, So in your book, there's a sobriety story in the chapter on drugs. And because of your Buddhist leanings, you focus a lot on foregoing the future and committing entirely to the present. Is that where you ground your whole idea of sort of how the world comes into existence?
3: Yeah, except I think, you know, there's a lot in the book about temporality and about like the way that when we talk about the present or we talk about committing to the present, like it doesn't mean turning the back on the future. And, you know, and one paradigm for that, which I use in the book and that I believe has relationship to sobriety and other things is like planting seeds, like you plant seeds in the present with Mm. the hopes that they'll grow and I think a lot of sobriety is about like planting seeds of sanity without having the fruit in hand necessarily. But it doesn't, it means there's work to do in the present. The work is the planting. And you don't know. I mean, you know, there could be like a terrible frost that kills everything you planted. It could be that the planet doesn't survive and there's no next planting. It could be, I mean, my friend who I was just talking about who died, I mean, you know, I was just talking to her widow, for lack of a better term, about the way that it's very sad because they planted all these bulbs last fall that they'd hoped that they were going to be seeing together but it doesn't mean that the activity in the present wasn't worthwhile um if you can't see the fruit of it nor does it mean that you don't do it so i guess the despair would be to me would seem to indicate that you've already foreclosed your idea of the future and that you've determined it will be bad and that you've then determined there's nothing worth doing in the present that's very different from the kind of from kind of staying focused on the present while also doing what what seems to you right and what seems to you planting the seeds that you want to plant.
2: My favorite chapter of On Freedom, the chapter that made me eager to do this episode, is the chapter that tackles climate change and the conversation around it. Maggie Nelson takes particular umbrage at the hopelessness that abounds in climate coverage. The world's on fire, our grandchildren are doomed, it's already too late. Nelson sees no freedom in that. How can you do anything if it's already too late? So let's talk about use of language then in the climate, because what I'm thinking about is there was a Times article this month about how we failed our planet. It's images of how the planet is, is faltering and, and the, the biosphere is degrading. Mm-hmm. And it's called Postcards from a World on Fire. And I keep thinking about a world on fire. We know what they mean. We mean it's heating up, right? But at the same time, the planet is still blue from space. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it is, you know, there are many times that we drive out in the world and don't see a single fire. You're in California, so you see fires sometimes. But to say the world is on fire is, you know, not just a figure of speech, but perhaps Mm -hmm. a dangerous exaggeration. I mean, it's it sounds like revelation, like the book of the Bible. You know, What do you think about apocalyptic language, even if it seems useful about the climate?
3: I'm interested in talking about linguistic framings, but I think when we talk about them, we act as if there's one framing that works for all people. And I don't I think different frames work for different people. Yeah. That said, Eve Sedgwick, you know, in her work on paranoia, she talks about how paranoia places its faith in exposure is the phrase she used, and I think that that placing what you're talking about the world on fire, you're talking in part about exaggeration, but you're also I think talking about um, something placing its faith on if we could just impose upon people how bad something is and expose the bad thing, then then we'll move more towards the outcome of making the bad thing less mm. possible. Mm. And I think we I think we know by now through all this cell phone footage of you know. Uh, police brutality to uh and i have friends actually who've worked in the climate movement who spent a lot of the last decade um photographing disappearing places and changing places and um putting that work in art galleries in different places hoping that those images were going to move the dial and don't feel anymore like that like they've changed it's not that they feel like it failed that they just don't they feel like it's time to change strategy mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and so i do think that um when I see stuff like that in the paper, I just see it as part of, like, I see, oh, New York Times pacing, placing its faith in exposure and trying to sell papers and X, Y, and Z. I, I don't see it as stuff that makes people feel called in to working as part of a climate movement. I'm not even sure that that's what they see it as.
2: There was a study in Nature magazine this year that said uh, what it called pessimistic language, apocalyptic language, actually works to stir people to action. It's conclusions were that some of us have such a high tolerance for risk around the environment. We've seen, walked through museums and seen images of, you know, melting ice caps, even seeing images of starvation or tornadoes, and know that they're even tied to anthropogenic uh, climate change and aren't doing anything about it. So we need to be like grabbed by the lapels or even had our face, our eyes spat in before we'll we'll, uh, take any kind of action. I'm not sure what that action looks like.
3: Right, well, that's the problem, right? Right? Yeah. And it, w- what it would be to be
2: convinced by one thing or another, it's the the paranoid style or, or paranoid reading, as Eve mm-hmm. Sedgwick calls it, that gets us to say everything is climate change. You know, if you have a, a, a warm day in the winter, which no doubt could be tracked to climate change, to enjoy that weather mm-hmm. is possibly yeah. to downplay. Yeah. And so we must not use the language of, you know, beauty or relief or whatever around a warm day in the winter, lest we for a second drop our vigilance. That is yeah. paranoid, paranoid reading. Yeah, Tell us about reparative reading when it comes to the, to the climate in particular.
3: Well, I guess I would just say that in what you're talking about, I don't know if I'd quite call it reparative, but I think that feeling of like, it's a warm day. And if I can tie it to climate change, I can't enjoy it because it actually just means more doom, even though I thought it was pleasure. I mean, I think we can all notice in that, that that's, that's actually a a kind of amplified version of how a lot of us feel about joy and pleasure in life in general, you know, that it, that it portends a bad thing, you know, Mm -hmm. or that it's going to end. Or that it signifies, you know, hedonism, or it signifies something's at someone else's expense, or we don't deserve it because we're not worthy, or whatever it is. So I think that there's a certain way that to me, there's a certain going through the looking glass where you can accept that, like, well, maybe every blue sky nice day that feels warm may, may, may also summon, whether it's vis a climate change or something else, it may also summon a specter of all these ways that we uh have a difficult time experiencing pleasure or happiness without its shadow, but it's okay mm. because it has its shadow. You know, mm-hmm. And in some ways, the beautiful day is like, it's a beautiful day on the planet, no matter what its cause, but I'm not going to be here forever. And so there's a sadness because it's gorgeous and it's fleeting and you think, oh my God, what a beautiful world. But I think that once you can mm. accept that, I find that very helpful about the climate as well, because then you accept impermanence, you accept all these things that, you know, you accept the fact that human civilization will not last forever, no matter what. We don't even know what forever means. The earth won't last forever, no matter what. But then, but that doesn't mean that you say the fate of all the millions of people who will exist between now and when the earth burns out really don't matter at all. All their suffering is irrelevant to me because it will end. I mean that's not you know that that's that's foregoing ethics in in a major way.
2: I think there's something to that. I also think uh, one of Obama's uh, advisors on the environment presented this kind of trinity of responses to the climate Mm -hmm. change mitigation, which is you know trying to stop carbonization. Adaptation, which mm-hmm. is like building cold rooms, raising highways, you know the kind of things that may be net negative for the environment but have to stop people burning up right now and um, and suffering mm. and that will do them in equal quantities and so people I think who help alleviate or address suffering you know are are working on that third part. Talk about suffering and and the environment
3: oh gosh, I mean. There are so many people suffering such serious effects from climate change right now. They're not—they're not necessarily um, uh, in Brooklyn or Los Angeles where we're where we're talking. So I, I don't really want to speak on their behalf. But I do think that you know, in in the years I was writing this book, I mean, this is a cliche, but in the years I was writing this book, I think that more and more people are being touched by the suffering of climate change. And I think one of the problems of climate change is just that the question. You know, as like things that I've experienced of, but with fire, you know, it's happening on these two fronts where like you know it's related to this big global issue, mm-hmm. but you're really just like, Do I bring the passport? Like, you know, where should we do with the dog? Like how bad is the air? You know, like, um, well, does, you know, Googling, does duct tape really keep out wildfire small particles? I mean, like all these different very, very, very local things that yeah. you're work that you're thinking about. And it's very I think that that's gonna become the future, is that, and like, we're never gonna see, I mean, Timothy Morton calls it the hyper-object, like, climate change is a hyper-object. Like, you can't see the whole thing. And Mm. and maybe those efforts in the newspapers and things are trying to get people to see the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But everybody everywhere will feel it locally. Yeah. Um, And, I mean, I think eventually you just have to get people to not stress out about huge global problems they can't change Mm -hmm. and not be completely mired in the local, but you have to get that sweet spot where you just say, okay, I'm, I'm listening to scientists. I'm hearing that the leap of faith here is we have to decarbonize. Like there's something about decarbonization I am getting Yeah, kind of like taking the vaccine that you're like, okay, I'm not a, you know, virologist. I don't know the deal. I want to stay alive. Yeah, I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen to trustworthy people. And I'm going to say, I think this is, you know, what I need to work for here is I'm going to get my booster shot or whatever. And like, similarly, it's kind of like, well, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not running the calculations, but I, you know. I bought an electric car and I put solar panels on my house and I'm doing the things that, you know, I can see to do that I'm saying, I get it. I hear this, you know, and then you have to kind of believe. And this is the hard part that to not despair over running these like is what I'm doing good enough or not good enough. Everybody who's part of a movement eventually has to recognize that that the very small part that they'll play. Um, But that's just life. You know, that's just life.
2: Coming up after the break, does the climate crisis make it unethical to have kids?
0: eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles on a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary.
1: 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.
2: Welcome back to This is Critical. My guest today is the author and deep thinker, Maggie Nelson. Her new book is called On Freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. So I want to talk about one of the sort of more, I guess, controversial parts of your work, which is your resistance to the common argument that from a climate perspective, it's irresponsible to bring children into the world. For me, having a child was like how I would plant bulbs. Like, I wasn't thinking they'd come up, but more like time to plant the bulbs, like how I do the dishes. I don't even think, okay, I'll be happy later when they're clean. But I know that other people put more thought into it than I did You've brought life into this world in the form of your son. Was that itself an act of hope or some idea that the world would somehow be able to accommodate your offspring?
3: You know, to be totally honest, since we're just doing frank podcast talk, I mean, it really wasn't, um, that wasn't one of my burning questions. I just don't think, as I say in the book, that waiting around for everybody to kind of forego reproductive futurism and stop making babies is going to happen. I don't see how that particular individual decision, like I can see how on scale our decisions to have children play into the usurping of resources and uh, disparities about first world and third world resources. I can see all that, but I guess I just don't, um, it just wasn't one of the places where I felt like I could be of most service by not having a child.
2: Yeah, yeah, by refraining. That logic can take you to Thanos. I don't know if Iggy drags you to Avengers movies. (laughs) During the fires in, in Oregon, I read about speaking of the climate being a local problem, I read about someone who tried to open the door from the inside and got third degree burns on his oh, wow. on the, from the doorknob. And then I asked a friend there, what should I do to help? And they said, give to this climate organization to mitigate climate change. And I really just wanted some ointment on this hand. You know, then I thought, wow, we get so careful. I if there's any way I can find at the very least a GoFundMe. But, you know, ideally this address so I could Amazon overnight him some ointment. But
3: (laughs) because there are no problems with Amazon whatsoever. Yeah, well, well, but exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. exactly. (laughs) Not think through that
2: at all. That was my my desire. I just wanted, you know, for him to uh, like have to undergo some capitalist critique of Amazon delivery and last mile and micro transportation or whatever. So, and that sort of started me thinking that the philosophical puzzle presented to us by climate change is really kind of should be secondary to what one epidemiologist said, you know, don't, basically said, don't worry, just get a lot of peanut butter because that's a really good thing to sustain (laughs) your neighbors with if it comes to that. And I sort of think that is a model for care,
3: yeah, I think people are different, you know, and I think it's really important. I mean, I think that when you get lost in these paranoid loops of thinking or looking for tools without blood on them, so so when we get out of those, um you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong things, we make our own decisions and some people can buy the peanut butter and some people can write the policies and some people can canvas houses and some people can just vote and then live the rest of their lives. But I think that for me... I don't know, maybe this is super cheesy and it does not offset the carbon footprint of children. But, you know, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was trying to have a second child after her first. And I, I said something like, and, and it was proving difficult. And I said something like, well, you know, your, your, your first kid's so great. Like, <laughs> like, are you sure you need to, like, is it such a disappointment that you can't have the second? Like, why, yeah. kind of, not like why bother? But And she kind of said to me, well, the thing is, she said, the first child showed me that when you have a child, you put so much love into the world. Like, you just make so much more love. And Hmm. I just want to make, I want to make that much love again. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I thought, that's an amazing thing to say. And it really stuck with me because I guess my feeling, and this was at the end of my climate chapter where I talk about trying to raise my son to be somebody, you know, maybe who would buy the peanut butter, you know, is that like, there's a way in which if we're making people, which includes making ourselves, you know, trying to make them vessels for more service and for more love seems to me very worthwhile.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the reason I I bring it up is that I don't know how much you read responses to your book, reviews of your book, criticism of your book, Mm -hmm. but Andrea Long Chu in New York Magazine said she felt singled out as a queer writer who's been critical of having children. She criticizes you for calling her and folks like her callous because they're hopeless, about the extinction of humanity thanks to climate change?
3: Um, I didn't read that, so I can't speak to it in particular, but I do know what I said in the book about reproductive futurism, and I do have a section where I talk about the kind of changing of, in queer theory, where queer is for a long time for understandable reasons, either because it was illegal or impossible or um, to either have kids or keep them, you know? And, and because so many queers have been exiled from biological family and had to make chosen family because of being... Persecuted or disowned or all kinds of things, or just misunderstood. Um, I think that you know, there's a so queer theory really grew up needing to take stock of um, all these amazing, fa- fantastic ways of making relation and family and things that weren't related to a nuclear, you know, biological family. And that, and and that's one of queer theory's great, you know, contributions. I was really just um, addressing the fact that the kind of no future punk stance, you know, children are a cancer or something like that, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, I think it's more trying to know how a lot of movements, whether it's in the Parkland shooting or the sunrise movement, or there's so many movements that are kind of being led by children right mm-hmm. now. And that some of that no future um, anti-futurity stuff that had been so big when I was coming up in queer theory. And I think I was really just pointing out how a lot of um, queer organizations were imagining and, queers as part of sometimes their own families, but also, you know, ecological family in different ways than that no future moment that we've seemed to have passed through.
2: Coming up after the break, our freedom and caring total opposites.
0: eBay Motors is here for the ride with some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: This is a big year.
2: Welcome back to This Is Critical. Today I'm talking to the writer and thinker Maggie Nelson about her most recent book on freedom. The central theme of the book is this kind of tension between exercising your freedom, especially by being transgressive in art, sex, and all sorts of social realms, and somehow being able to do that while at the same time feeling constrained by caring about other people. In other words, sometimes my freedom causes you pain. I think the heart of your book might be this navigation, kind of a, a transition from the move of celebrating transgression, uh, as in the old days when you and I were in graduate school, or or to and to caring or tending to trauma as the as what art must do. Tell me what you think of
3: that. I think what you just described is kind of like the zeitgeist, you know, <laughs> like the kind yeah. of like that's the kind of idea, like and in and going around with this book, I've had it put to me that way a lot, like oh, like, you guys grew up with transgression, but now we're interested in ethics and caring and trauma. And I'm kind of like, so I I, Hmm. I think that that's the kind of...
2: Did you just do an impression of me asking a dumb question? No, I'm just kidding. That wasn't you. I'm just kidding. No, no, no.
3: I think what I'm trying to say is is that I think that the book is trying to do something a little more complicated, which is I think it's um, acknowledging that transgression isn't necessarily politically progressive or valenced in any direction. There's, you know, fascism, capitalism are also transgressive. and. Norm shattering and other things. So, yeah. So that's important. And then on the other side, you know, that we can value care and um, a kind of constant negotiation, ethical relation, while also bringing a very critical eye to some of these sloganeerings about care and noticing the way that care uh, has a relationship historically and physically and psychically with like coercion that has to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. It's gendered, it's racialized. We have to understand that, like, when you oppose freedom and obligation to each other, then you're always imagining a free self as an unencumbered self, a non obligated self. And that because the world consists of people doing work to make other people's lives possible, then you will always have people who are unencumbered to produce these free subjects. So there's something rotten about the formulation that has to be rethought. Yeah. So I think it's really more about rethinking and not just replacing one discourse with Hmm. another, Hmm. you know?
2: I think we should return to the occasion for your book, which is uh, the occasion for so much of our work, uh, which I would describe as the kind of punch in the face administered to all of us in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. Suddenly this almost postmodern figure, someone who leveraged alternative facts and truth isn't true, the kind of ironic discourse of self-invention and performance and dress and costume all of that in Trump curdled and turned kind of reckless and destructive. Sometimes the avant-garde just doesn't end well. It seems like that election also brought you up short and gave you occasion to really confront the idea of freedom. Do I have that right?
3: I don't really share the analysis that Trump is like a product of Postmodernism gone amuck. Like I don't share that per se. And I don't think that I mean I think you can go back even as far as um I think it was a review of of the James Frey and pairing it along with uh, like the lies that were told to invade Iraq, kind of like blaming
2: Ah, uh, this is a million little pieces, right? The the fake memoir.
3: Yeah, kind of blaming the fudging that we've gotten used to there with these invented, you know, yellow cones or something that Colin Powell brought to the UN or something. And I just Mm. remember at the time, like, I was just like, it just seems like kind of like a parlor game to like make certain links between things. And I think it's important to say too, that the issues on freedom are, they're so old for, for this country. What I just described about this structure of a, of a free citizen produced and maintained by, um, the encumbered or subjugated that produce him, you know, that, that that's not just old in this country, but it's an ancient idea from, you know, ancient Greece about what the citizen is in the political sphere and the, you know, the women and slaves that have to produce that subject. So these questions, I guess I'm just trying to say are really old. And I think it, um, I was working on the book before I I, re- I was researching it before um, Trump's election mm-hmm. and, and got to work on it during, you know, the presidency from 2016 to 2020, but just like the pandemic where people have said to me like, wow, it's so interesting that this freedom care dichotomy is like technicolor vis-a-vis vaccination or something yeah, like, yeah. you know, but you wrote the book before the pandemic. And I'm like, yeah, because it's a really mm-hmm. old one, you know? So I think in certain ways, it's just important to keep seeing things in new guises and and Trump was a shock to the system. But I think that you know, even the little brief history I give in the um, art chapter about the way that Italian futurism, like as an art mm-hmm. movement, was, fu- you know, fused with Mussolini eventually, that kind of fascist or futuro party. Like, like when you say avant-garde, things always don't end well. It's like, you know, Russian futurism and Italian futurism had really different outcomes and the really different figures associated with them, even though they might have had some, like, typographical experiments that looked the same, you know what Yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. They, and they were both contending with things like speed and the invention of the automobile and the airplane and, like, and, 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 of course, a certain futuristic discourse was being shared, but it didn't have the same political expression. So I think that I would just be wary of things that, you know, when you see in retrospect that something became something, you then begin mm-hmm. to think that the first thing led to it or was a Mm -hmm. slippery slope to it. But I just don't think that's an adequate historical analysis.
2: Well, I hope I said not that avant-garde movements always don't end well, but don't always end well, and also that, that they can curdle or mutations that you couldn't predict. Um, I think I'm thinking of um, Richard Rorty, who I, who, who, who I ended up studying with, you know, who, who basically decided that the avant-garde and kind of progressive egalitarian politics just couldn't live together, mm-hmm. that your, your, the avant-garde mm-hmm. was for your private life and your public life was meant to be humane. Mm. And that those two things, you didn't ever, ever have to square them. Listeners, you know I hate to do this, but I have to jump in to prepare you with some definitions. So it's easy for Maggie and I to kind of fall into a pretentious hole of jargon. And there are two phrases you're about to hear that might not be familiar to you. So first, technologies of subjugation. These are things that keep people unfree. And it doesn't have to mean literal technology. It's not apps or phones, although it could be that. It can more mean expressions or apparatus of the patriarchy. So take the lectern in front of a class that makes you all stare at one kind of Sermon on the Mount Jesus figure giving a speech. Or the portrait of the worker as fundamentally male in a hard hat or the idea of doctors as autonomous heroes rather than part of a network of caregivers. The second phrase that I want to just be sure you know is practices of freedom. This is a phrase Maggie uses. These are actions people take to kind of prove to themselves and prove to the world that they're free. So this could be something like making protest art or living a polyamorous lifestyle up to and including something like revolution. All these terms play an important role in On Freedom's chapter on sex and sexuality. Nelson argues that the current trend ushered in by the Me Too movement can focus too much on detailing the gruesomeness and pervasiveness of heterosexual power relations. Those are her words. In other words, too much focus on the technology of subjugation in the culture. Nelson sees a need to balance this view of sexuality with more focus on practicing our hard-won sexual freedom. So talk a little bit about how sexuality, which was a big feature of of the Argonauts, ended up becoming one of the fulcrums where you thought through freedom.
3: Well, I think if if you're a, you know, I was born in 73, and if you're kind of like born like right after the, kind of high 60s and then into Roby Wade and different things. Um, and then through, you know, gay liberation, you know, the, the sexual arena is just one arena in which words like liberation and freedom, you know, were more used to describe the struggle than they are currently um, necessarily, although we may see with abortion issues um, that, that that coming back maybe. But I think that there's always a kind of ebb and flow between, I, I, I did an interview with Paul Preciado as a really smart thinker. And, you know, the phrase Paul would use would be like technologies of subjugation. And that there's always a kind of ebb and flow between focusing on what the technologies of subjugation are at any given moment. And then this kind of Ideas about like practices of freedom and how to you know augment or amplify or you know or or live the ones that we do have you know yeah and there's always this kind of uh, I think difficult tension between do we expose or you know and like make very public the way that things are still not good enough you know and Mm -hmm. then as we do so how do we how do we practice the freedoms that we do have and not lose sight of them as we focus on these technologies of subjection which are always multiplying and replicating and they're always Mm -hmm. you know you can kind of whack a mole with them your whole life so I think that my chapter is not meant, I mean, the reactionary stance says, oh my God, everybody, you know, the Me Too movement really just lost the whole discourse of sexual freedom, got totally lost in technologies of subjugation, and, you know, what a wrongheaded turn, and and now I will restore, you know, freedom to the discourse. But that wasn't what I was aiming to do. I was much more interested in, like, I know this ebb and flow will always exist. It's always existed in feminism or in any other movement um, there's a kind of way that to live a life that feels livable and kind of like, again, like we were talking about before like to look at the blue sky and to mm-hmm. not be like, oh, it's a sign of climate change. It's an awful day. Mm-hmm. Like there, there has to be some felt practice in you, like say in a sex life where like you can have, you can find ways to have, you know, a sex in your life that is not, um, you know, a travesty, you know, like that, like, and, and that can happen. It's possible. P- you, know, we're, you know, we you know, we do it. We do do it. Many people do it
2: buzzkill that you make us <laughs> confront so much ambiguity. I mean, come on, don't you want to get on Twitter and get into a culture war and take a side? Um, no, the
3: idea of the words get on Twitter are like, you know, maybe I'm my gravestone. She never got on Twitter. So
2: yeah, <laughs> I'm, gl- I, I'm glad and I know from your book that you you almost can't picture what that means.
3: I mean, there are some cool abstract poets and stuff who have like, there are some cool people, but the whole everything else, no, not really.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, thank you so much, Maggie, for talking.
3: Oh, thank you. I'm sorry it's over. That's it
2: for this week's show. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear please take a minute to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. Seriously, it helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at Page88 and at This Critical Pod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan and Stitcher. Harry Huggins is the producer. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Marderana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical.
3: ditcher
1: this is a big year the ohio lottery's golden anniversary 50 years of excitement of growing jackpots and crossed fingers 50 years of funding for schools of changed lives and brightened days 50 years of fun and that is worth celebrating so, watch for can't miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.